Amen. Amen. Good evening, brothers and sisters. If you could, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We'll be looking at verses 38 through 48. As Pastor Mike said, we're continuing to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. In this uh, portion of the text, we are ending this third portion of the Sermon on the Mount that focuses on how the followers of Jesus relate to his law. We've looked at anger. We've looked at lust, divorce. Uh, Last week, uh, uh, Pastor D.T. House, we looked at oaths. And tonight, we come to a very difficult yet necessary topic, opposition and persecution. This text if I'm being honest, is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. There is no other command that is so difficult to hear. There's no command that seems so unnatural to the human heart. This command goes against every fiber of our natural being. But these words come from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason, we must hear and take heed of what he has to say. Before we read his words, let us approach the throne of grace and ask the Spirit of God to help us in this moment. Father, you've brought us all in this sanctuary for a reason tonight. You have a word that you want to convey to us, your people. Empower us in this moment to hear the word that you have to say to us. Might we all be transformed by what you have to say to us And may Christ, may Christ be glorified in our response to that good news. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me now, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Earlier this year, in January, Pastor Jonathan Stanberg came to the young adult class to teach on missions. In one of those uh, Sunday school lessons, he showed a YouTube video uh, highlighting Christians in Pakistan. In the video... They mentioned how Christians there were routinely threatened and persecuted. 
They were, they are socially ostracized, banished, and relegated to the lowest class of society. The video makes mention how the job opportunities are few and far between. Uh, ones that are of lowly status, cleaning sewers, building bricks, with no possibility of getting any better. This video, oh, I remember it. This video shows a Christian brother, our Christian brother, removing his shirt so that he can step into a sewer that he might clean it because that is all he could do in his community. As jaw-dropping as the sight was, what was even more astonishing to me was what our Christian brother and brothers request, requested for us to pray for them. They requested this, that we would pray that they would persevere and serve joyfully as unto the Lord. Their request was that God would strengthen them to continue to serve and to continue to witness to Christ in spite of the persecution, ridicule, and the lack of dignity that they are shown in their community. How does that sit with you? How does that situation sit with you? How does our brother's response sit with you? If you were relegated to cleaning sewers because of your faith in Christ, how would you respond? Although we live in America where persecution, physical persecution is minimal, the question how would you respond is actually still a wrong question. The question as a follower of Jesus that you and I need to ask is how will we respond when we face opposition for following Jesus. I know how I would respond. I know how I felt when I saw our brother being humiliated. But Jesus, knowing our natural bend towards retaliation, our natural bend towards hate, here in Matthew 5, he drops some truth for us on how we as followers of Jesus should respond to opposition when we face it how to respond in a way that magnifies God, that honors Jesus Christ and displays the gospel to the world. This text shows us that when we face opposition, our response is to be none other than the response that Jesus himself had when he himself faced opposition. No different, no less. The standard has not dropped even though it is hard to do. So what does this text encourage us to do? What is this text, how does it encourage us to respond? Now, as I was studying these few passages, there are, there's so much truth here. And as I've wrestled with the Lord this week, there are four things, uh, four ways we are to respond to opposition. There are more, but we only have 25 minutes. I wish we had more, but we're going to talk about these four tonight. So first, this text shows us what I want to call the blatantly obvious. This text shows us that before we even experience opposition, we have to come to grips with, we have to embrace the reality of opposition. 
As a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I must embrace that opposition is in our future if you and I follow Jesus. The reality of opposition is not relegated to just those radical Christians over there or those who go overseas to an unreached people group. It is for anyone who bears the name of Christ, anyone who says, I follow Jesus. Actually, this is the second time that Jesus mentions uh, opposition or persecution in the Sermon on the Mount. A few weeks ago, Pastor Alan Martin preached on Matthew 5, 10 through 12, in which Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted for theirs. Blessed are the persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At this point, Jesus addresses this future hope, this eschatological hope that if you are suffering for my name now, there is a hope you have. The kingdom is yours. That's what he's addressing at that point in the sermon. But now he brings it back up and he talks about opposition from a different angle. Jesus wants to show how his followers are to respond in a way where their righteousness exceeds. Remember, we talked about that earlier on on in Matthew 5, around 520, a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees as they face opposition in the here and now. He's talking about what do we do in the nitty gritty of life when people oppose you? Look simply here in verse 39 and verse 44. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. This is not a reference at this particular point of Satan, nor is it just this evil out here. This is referring to a person who wishes to harm a follower of Jesus. And again, in verse 44, Jesus says, love your enemy, or excuse me, it's in the plural, enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. As Jesus is preaching to his followers, he tells them plainly, hostility awaits. Opposition is in your future. Look at these words. Just if we cruise down here, the one who is evil, he starts giving hypotheticals. If one slaps you, sues you, forces you to go a mile. Jesus is giving them insider information. He's giving them a heads up. Opposition is a future reality. Have you, have you ever been driving and you look to your right and you see this yellow sign and in the center of that sign is a car that in, is in front of this wavy line? You know you are running up on a curve and it is telling you, it's giving you a heads up to say, slow down, you're about to take a curve here. And how many of us have forgotten, have not taken heed to, have not embraced that sign and kept going and you take that turn and everything in your car shifts to the right, including the passengers that are in there. Everybody takes that hard lean and then by the time you straighten back up, you look over and a passenger looks at you like, why didn't you slow down? You had a heads up right there. In the same way, in the same way, we cannot fail to see this heads up that God has for us. Opposition is coming. Do not fail to embrace that 
Opposition is in our future. It may not be physical opposition, physical persecution. It may not be uh, someone forcing you to work in a sewer, but it very well could be you being ostracized at school or at work. It may mean you missing a job promotion because of what you believe. It may be that you might be canceled by family members who disagree with the convictions that you have. I'm not sure how opposition will play out in our lives, but I do know this. If we follow him, opposition is in our future, and we must come to grips with that reality, no matter how kind you are, no matter how much you try to give context to your convictions. To follow Jesus means we will face opposition, not because of us, but because of the one we follow. So if this is the social context that Jesus has dropped his followers in. This is the social atmosphere. The question now becomes, how are we to respond to the inevitable? How are we to respond when persecution or opposition comes? The text says this. This text shows us that right now, as a believer, you and I tonight have to decide We have an opportunity to decide how we respond when we face opposition. As I said, Jesus has given us a spiritual heads up. You have insider information. People may be hostile towards you because of what you believe. Now the question is, how will you respond? Will you fire back? Will you send verbal assaults their way? Will you be run over like a doormat? Will you let people take advantage of you? How will you respond? Do you know how to respond? Jesus tells his followers exactly how to respond in these situations. In verse 39, he says, do not resist. Do not resist the one who is evil. In verse 44, he says, love your enemies. And continuing on, he says, pray for those who persecute you. In summary, he says, do not do this and do this. These two two responses are countercultural now and they were very much countercultural then. The Pharisees had a, a way of handling opposition that differed drastically from what Jesus posited. I I was reading here and I couldn't help but think, have you ever seen a, a contortionist? Have you ever seen someone who can like bend all types of ways? All I can think of when I'm reading the Pharisees' uh, rabbinical interpretation of the Old Testament, I can see them doing back, hermeneutical backflips, trying to figure out how do I keep this feeling that I have towards people and obey God at the same time. Jesus even acknowledges this. In verse 38, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The interpretation gave them grounds that if someone did me wrong, I can do them wrong. But there's a problem with this. The principle was actually not to be applied in personal relationships. It was actually given in the context of a judicial system. It wasn't to be used as a, a grounds to get your rights back. 
and personal vendettas. That is not what this text was meant for. And Jesus was acknowledging that. And Jesus says, no, followers of Jesus respond differently. They don't retaliate in personal relationships. Instead of holding on to their rights and retaliating and saying, this is what's fair, they are to give from they are to give more when someone takes. Now, I, I want to, you know, I, I always have to take a little detour real quick, but I, I want to take a detour before we talk about what Jesus says, because I want to make sure you understand clearly what he is not saying, what this text is not saying. This text, Jesus is not arguing for pacifism. He's not arguing for uh, not Uh, defending oneself. He's not arguing that military or police enforcements are wrong. He is not arguing that anytime you see someone on the street and they ask you for money, you are to give it to them. He's not saying that because sometimes the worst thing you could do is give someone who wants money, money. So there is a principle that he is getting at and a principle that needs to be applied with biblical wisdom. And what is that principle? The principle is this, in the context of your personal relationships, when people take, the response is sacrificial giving. That's the principle, and that has to be applied with wisdom. These are illustrations that Jesus are giving. These are not to be seen as hard lines. Look at the, the four illustration he, illustrations he gives. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Now, right off the cuff, I'm like, he's talking about someone hits you, you just pow, turn to the right, give him the next one. But in this context, this, what Jesus is addressing is not a physical assault, but actually insults. The most insulting thing one could do at that time is a backhand. And what Jesus is saying, when you are insulted, You don't retaliate, you turn the other cheek. He says, if someone sues you, don't just give up your tunic. Think about it like this. Don't just give up your t-shirt. Actually, give the coat also. And what's interesting is the coat was this inalienable piece of material. There was no law that could take that away from you. But Jesus goes on to say, if they take your shirt, your tunic, give them the cloak as well. If someone forces you to go a mile, don't just go one mile, go two. If someone begs from you, don't just, don't refuse them, give it. In the context of personal relationships, what is this principle? And I want to reiterate it. It is to be willing to sacrifice for those who do you harm. It is to be willing to give to those who take from you. Then in verses 43 through 48, so we just looked at uh, 38 through 42, in 43 through 48, Jesus continues on addressing these wrong interpretations that the Pharisees have. Verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And just as he has done throughout, Jesus contrasts this by saying, but I say to you, the issue with this rabbinical interpretation was kind of twofold. First, if they were going to use Leviticus 19, it was lacking two things. One, it failed to mention as yourself, 
And two, nowhere did it say, hate your enemy. This was just a, a logical conclusion for them. Well, if this is my brother, these are my neighbors, I'm to love them, I can hate my enemy. This was a logical conclusion. And what Jesus says, he resists this teaching. And he says, no, 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 no. You love your enemies, you pray for them. You pray for your persecutors. They are to love them not in an emotional way, but in a way that seeks their good, in a real tangible way. And they were to pray for them, or I like, I like it better, to pray on their behalf for their salvation, for their conversion. And there is no clearer picture, there is no clearer illustration than in the, the Gospels and in the, in, in the book of Acts. In the Gospel, our Lord Jesus is pinned to a cross, a crown of thorns on his head, gasping for air, beaten, battered, bruised, nails driven through his ankles. And he prays on behalf of those who are persecuting him. He says, Father, strike him down. No, he doesn't. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then another one of his followers in the book of Acts, Stephen, he is being stoned. He's about to be stoned. And those who persecute him, they had their stones in their hands. They had it cocked back, ready to launch them at him. And he says, Father, smite them. And he does it. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You and I, as followers of Jesus, have been given another way. You do not have to fight against people who retaliate. You don't have to retaliate against people who fight against you. You don't have to be tit for tat. You don't, neither do you have to be a doormat. Jesus has set us free. He has set us free from the bondage and the shackles of retaliation and hate. And as one commentator said it, Jesus has given us the strategic strategy of sacrifice, love, and prayer. So now the question is, how will you choose to respond to your current or future opposition? Will you fight for your rights? Will you hate those who insult you? Will you look to get back at those who malign you or mock you? for your faith? These are hard questions to answer. And if I'm honest, it sometimes feels next to impossible, doesn't it? So what reason do you have to respond this way? What reason do you have when someone asks, takes from you, you give more? What reason do you have if someone hates you and seeks your harm, you love them? And you pray for them. What is it? And this text shows us exactly what that reason is. Jesus not only gives us a way to follow, he gives us a reason to follow as well. And this text says that we have a reason to respond with love and sacrifice. We have a reason. We don't just do it because it's even the, it's the right thing. We have a reason. 
Sacrifice and loving your enemy is hard. Can you imagine praying blessings, even, even as I think about our Lord praying for those who are pinning him to a cross, as we think about our brother Stephen, as he's about to get stoned praying for them? It feels next to impossible. But the Lord has given us a reason why we do this crazy thing. In verse 45, look with me. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Another way of saying this is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you can show the world, display to the world that you are a child of God. By responding with sacrifice and blessing those who who persecute you, you are showing off your family heritage, your family lineage. Responding like this is a family affair because that's exactly how God our Father responds to those who are hostile to him. Jesus says this in verse 45, for he, talking about God, makes his son, and I love this, makes his son, not just the son. He said he makes his son rise on evil, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is how God deals with his opposition, undeserved blessing and grace. And some of us like to call that common grace. This is a family affair. Those who do not follow Jesus, they don't respond this way. Look what Jesus says in 46 and 47. Essentially, he says tax collectors. No, 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 no. They don't love their enemies. They just love those who love them. Gentiles, they don't greet their enemies. They just greet those who, they're they're brothers. This is a family affair. But again, I want to give you one more clear illustration that God loves and blesses his enemy. If you are a Christian in this room this evening, you are a beneficiary of the fact that God loves his enemy. And if you are not a Christian tonight, you can benefit from the fact that God loves his enemies. In the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul says this in verses 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The timing of Christ's death is important in understanding how God relates to his enemies. Pay attention to the timing of God's love for us. Pay attention to the timing of Christ's death for us. Verse 8, God loved us while we were sinners. God reconciled himself to us while we were enemies. Christ died for us while we were sinners. While we were enemies. The text does not say God loved us once we started cleaning up. God loved us once we started doing a little better and said, God, I'm going to start seeking after you. I know I've been, I've had all this animosity towards you, Lord. I'm going to put that aside. And when God recognized that, that's when he loved us. No, he loved us when we were hostile to him. God pursued man. He pursued us when we were at our worst, enemies of him. Why do we love and sacrifice for our enemies? 
because it is a part of the family business. It is a family value of the people of God. We love those who don't love us. And God is not requiring you to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He is, he is calling you to do exactly what he has done on your behalf. So I would challenge you, believer, to reflect on that, to reflect on the truth that God loved you while you were a sinner. And if you have not yet put your hope in Christ, I would ask you to think about that. What does it mean for God to love you, for God to love you while you were a sinner? John Stott says this, and this was a game changer. There, not every quote is a game changer. But this quote from John Stott is a game changer in his book, Cross of Christ. God did not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. There is an infinite chasm between those two points. God loves me now because Christ died. No, Christ died because he loves you. Remind yourself of that truth. My last point is this. This text shows us clearly that we are to use opposition as an opportunity and as a reminder of the grace that we have been extended. We know the deal. Just because you know why to do something doesn't make it any easier. We all want to defend ourselves. When we leave out of here, we're going to want to defend ourselves. We want to do what's right, what's fair. Where do we go from here? Jesus says this in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is your standard. It's not this external righteousness. It's a heart righteousness. And God is not going to relax his law so that you might meet them. Instead of relaxing the law, God is promising to conform us and to mature us to a point where we live that out. And we must hold fast to that promise. But even while we hold fast to that promise right now, we do all that we can. We put our hands to the plow to actually do what he says. And this is not legalism, nor is this a vain attempt. Uh, my seminary professor, uh, this was so helpful in helping me understand the, the balance between resting in grace and doing all that you can to, to, to obey. Um, I'm not huge on... Uh, sports analogies, but the sticks, Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, these are some of the most phenomenal hitters in the game of baseball has ever seen. And their batting average was around 300. So that means for, out of every 10 times they went up, they would hit the ball three times. So that means every 10 times they went up, seven out of 10, they were not going to get hit the ball. They weren't going to hit a home run. They were, they were going to get out. Yet every time they stepped into the batter's box, they were looking to put the ball over the fence. Yet they were well aware that seven out of 10, they're probably gonna get out. That did not excuse them. They didn't walk up there flippantly like, well, seven out of 10 times, so I'm gonna go take a, a weak whack at this. No, they went up every time pursuing to hit the ball. In the same way, as a believer, this task seems insurmountable to love your enemy. It seems like maybe one out of every 150 times might we be able to obey him. 
What I'm saying is God is calling us to put our hands to the plow. And when we fail, this is a reminder of the grace that God has extended us. So when you face opposition, use that as a reminder of the grace that God extended towards you when you were an enemy. When you face opposition, use that as a reminder of the grace that you need, the spiritual grace that you need to respond as he's calling you to respond. And let opposition, future or present, drive you to this table that we are about to partake in. We are about to partake in the Lord's Supper. And it is here that we are not only strengthened to actually live out what God has called us to do, but it is here that we come face to face and we are reminded that Christ died while we were enemies. So contemplate that reality as you hear those words, Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you. Remind that that happened while you were a sinner. And allow that grace to strengthen you spiritually that you may respond to opposition that the way that God himself would with sacrifice and love. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you loved us while we were enemies. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us as we partake from your table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.